In this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Show, the best caffeine alternatives and things that make coffee work even better. Why you need a skin callus, the flawed red meat study, four keys to happiness, and much more. Faith, family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. All right, I've been drinking this stuff at lunch. Usually I have bone broth with lunch, but I switched to this stuff. It's super interesting. It's called Halon. Halon is well spelled H-A-E-L-A-N. It might be Helon. I don't know. Helon? Whatever. It tastes good. I think it's Helon. Anyways, it's called Helon 951. This is basically soy. And I know all of you are like, soy, you're not supposed to consume that, right? Now, understandably, there's lots of conflicting information out there. Uh, The short answer is, yes, you should be consuming soy, but only if it's the right kind, which is pretty rare. Because genetic engineering and poor soil and improper harvesting means most modern-day soy has some serious issues. And try and say modern-day soy 10 times fast, I dare you. Uh, I did a podcast with Dr. William Lee from the Angiogenesis Foundation. We actually talked all about soy benefits, but uh, this, this Helon stuff. Get this. It's a concentrated nitrogen-fermented beverage made from organic soybeans grown in the mountains of Mongolia. They have proven this species to be anti-angiogenic, meaning it doesn't feed cancer, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and anti-carcinogenic, enormously rich in vitamins and minerals, and a complete protein source, all your essential amino acids. People use this stuff now for energy, for better sleep, for detox, for longevity, for meal replacement, really great anti-cancer benefits as well. Now, it's fermented, and it's soy, and so it doesn't taste that good. I'll just come around and tell you. But what they do is they ship out like this mint powder that you mix with it that makes it actually taste really good. I just drink it on ice with this mint powder with lunch, and it's really, really amazing stuff, and I feel really good on it. I have a like peace of mind that I'm drinking anti-cancer every day with lunch. So you get a special discounted package over there and free shipping on a bunch of bottles of this stuff. Here's how. Remember this for spelling because it's a little difficult. Helon951, H-A-E-L-A-N 951.com slash Ben. I'm going to say that again. Ready? H-A-E-L-A-N 951.com slash Ben. Howdy, howdy, ho, folks. I am hiring. That's right. I'm hiring. Ben Greenfield Life is looking for an IT specialist. What that means is I need somebody who can help me out with technical and web development, support software systems, optimal performance of the websites, the platforms, the users, the team. I'm really looking for somebody who has a few years working in the IT field who knows things like uh, email service providers, Shopify, WordPress, Klaviyo, backups, you name it, and who also is preferably interested in things like health and fitness and biohacking. Uh, Asana, Slack, Zoom are three of the programs that we use to support the team at Ben Greenfield Life. And uh, preferably, whoever applies for this position has some pretty good interpersonal skills and can work uh, across a wide variety of teams and customers and external vendors and also just be a total tech head who can 
fix stuff that goes wrong from a technical standpoint. If you are interested in this job that includes technical support, web development, technology maintenance, and much more, and you want a salaried position full-time that can be done from anywhere in the world, you can apply at bengreenfieldlife.com slash itjob. That's bengreenfieldlife.com slash itjob, and we are hiring soon. We're filling this position quick, so... If you're interested, bengreenfieldlife.com slash IT job. Let's talk about magnesium. So magnesium is an essential mineral responsible for 300 vital functions in your body, yet 60% of us are deficient. Now, I started working with this company to actually get you magnesium in a very tasty manner. They're these wellness ingestibles from a company called Higher Dose, and I helped them develop three different products, detox drops, hydration powder, and chill chews. They're all designed to pair with the higher dose infrared, red light, and PEMF devices, like their sauna blanket and their infrared face mask and their mat. Like you take this stuff, you pair it with their products and you enhance the detox, enhance the effects. Like you can add the detox drops to your water before a workout or a sauna session, bunch of hyper clean ingredients, binds to toxins, nice minty flavor. I love that one. I had it in my coffee this morning, actually. Then they have the hydration powder. That's an electrolyte-rich formula. It's got magnesium, a potent blend of B vitamins, a bunch of other goodies in there specifically to support a sauna session. So you just shoot this stuff back before you go in the sauna. Then they have chill chews. These are magnesium gummies. You eat them at night. They help to balance your body and relax your mind. They're super good. They're low sugar. I'll just grab a handful of them. I don't know how many I'm supposed to eat. The bottle probably says, but I just grab a handful of them and go to bed. And it's amazing. And they taste really good. So anyways... This company, Higher Dose, is building some great stuff. And I've consulted with them and helped them out with their menu, so to speak. So this stuff is huge thumbs up for me because I helped help them with it. So you go to HigherDose.com slash Ben to get 15% off of any of their stuff today. HigherDose.com slash Ben. Or you can just use promo code Ben and that will get you 15% off. Jay, hello, hello. Hey, man. I, I got a question for you right off the bat here because I've been shoot busy, busy in my kitchen. Not too busy, but you know, somewhat occupied. Uh, I'm making a fermented fizzy little drink on my kitchen counter right now. It's uh, uh-huh. it's called water kefir. Have you heard of it before? No, I just thought you were going to say kombucha, so I no. was caught off guard with water kefir. No, no, Sc- I have not. Screw kombucha. Kombucha is like <laughs> 2014. Uh, no, like, well, a lot of people don't like kombucha because it is made from like a tea starter. So it's got caffeine in it and some people want to, want to avoid the caffeine. And honestly, for some people, kombucha seems to aggravate like, uh, candida and, and yeast. Like a lot of people have candida or yeast, which is pretty common. They kind of gives them like, you know, small intestine bacterial overgrowth and, Bloating because and, of the strains that are found in kombucha? Yeah, I think it's the bacterial strains because the, the, the strains in kefir are a little bit different. So kefir's right, got right. like yeasts and lactic acid bacteria and, and, uh, and you know, like billions of different organisms in it. But a lot of the research on it shows that it actually reduces a ton of different digestive system disorders, including limiting candida growth, which is kind of interesting. It actually, you know, fights a lot of these pathogenic microorganisms, not only candida, like salmonella, E. coli, uh, Clostridium difficile, but it is super nutrient dense. It gives you like liquid slippery poops that are amazing. Oh, always need those. Yeah. It's got no caffeine in it. And unlike dairy kefir, which a lot lot of people might be familiar with kefir as being like the fermented dairy drink, you don't make it with water. Like the way I make it on my Mm -hmm. kitchen counter is I just have a giant vat I got kefir grains, uh, even though my dad and my brother make kefir and they, they offered me their grains, 
I actually wound up having some grains from a company called Cultures for Health because it's just like regular kefir. You can kind of like share your, you know, or, or kombucha, right? You can share your your mother for kombucha or you can share your, uh, what do they call them? Uh, they don't call them grains with milk kefir. Maybe they do. Anyways, mm-hmm. you, you, can, you can share them. You can also buy them. So what I've got are these giant glass vats up on my kitchen counter. And I started my first vat by taking the grains and and uh, soaking them for a couple of days in water and molasses and sugar and a little bit of citrus juice, which apparently helps out a little bit. You know, a little bit of, of uh, lime juice is what I used. And then uh, after that fermentation, which was called the first fermentation, I strained all the water off and started a second batch with the leftover kefir grains. And then with the with the kefir water that I'd strained off. I mix that with, uh, with you can mix it with a ton of stuff. You can mix it with ginger, you can mix it with pomegranate, you can mix it with with, with anything. But I mix mine with, with some tart cherry juice, just because I happen to have some tart cherry juice. And uh, then that's on the kitchen counter. I'll ferment another like three to four days to get nice and fizzy and carbonated. And then I'll bottle it, and it's just basically uh, like water kefir. You know, and uh, it's obviously something you can buy at the grocery store for like $5.99 a bottle, but it, I mean, it costs pennies on the dollar to make, and it only takes me a few hours, and I figure my time's worth $5.99 an hour. So well worth it. Debatable, debatable, but I do have a question. But it's fun. It's fun. Not everything has to be monetizable. That's true. That's true. Good point. So the question is, and I'm sure mm-hmm. people are going to ask this, uh, how, how does it taste? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I took a little like sip when I poured it out to do the cherry juice. It tastes the way it's supposed to, but I like it carbonated. So I'm going to ferment it a whole bunch more to get nice and carbonated. Nice. Yeah. 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 It's it's like for kombucha, for kefir, for all of the fermented drinks, it's like I can deal with them. Like I I will look past um, the taste, if you will, Mm -hmm. because of the health benefits. I have just never, even with as much of I've, as I've drunk of, of all of these, I have never like gotten used to the flavor or like enjoy hmm. it. Like for me, yeah. it's still kind of like, eh, kind of just like get it down because I understand it's beneficial, but I've never really liked it. Do you actually like, like the flavor of that stuff? Yeah, I do. I, well, well, the weird thing is I don't like beer, but I actually do kind of like kombucha, yeah. although I don't drink it because it gives me some tummy upset because I think of the candida yeast factor, but kefir I really like. Like I, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I first found it at a grocery store once it's got a, there's a brand, I think Kavita and they had like yeah. one that was kind of like a master cleanse, you know, with a little bit of, I think it was uh, cayenne pepper and maybe a bit of ginger mm-hmm. or turmeric. And I think maybe a sweetened with a little bit of maple or something like that, almost like that master cleanse formula. They were trying to replicate that, but with, with water kefir. And I remember liking it and I'd, I'd bought it a few times since then, but you know, when I saw my dad and my brother make it, I was like, gosh, I got to get on this water kefir bandway and try this out since it's in the family now. So nice. Yeah, there you have it. My wife makes sourdough bread, but I've got the kefir game mastered, baby. Maybe. There you go. Look uh, at all that fermentation in your home. You guys are going right. to have amazing gut flora. All right. Ready to talk about some other stuff, including more about caffeine? Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. I'd love to talk about caffeine. Well, first of all, this is the part of the show where we go over a bunch of the news flashes and get into some 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 of the nitty-gritty behind them. I I'm you know I, I put out probably about 20 different studies a week on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook and and I'll link to all these if you go to bengreenfieldlife.com 
slash 449. But sometimes we like to talk about some of the more compelling ones on the show uh, before we turn to our live audience, because you can join our Q&A shows live. If you follow me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Ben Greenfield, usually the Wednesday mornings, a couple times a month, we go live. So later on, we'll take on some live questions. And uh, the, the, the first thing I want to talk about today was caffeine. Not just caffeine, but some things you can combine with caffeine to make it work better, and and, and some of the latest research on caffeine, which we which we know is a you know really great performance enhancement and you know mental enhancement aid, probably one of the more popular drugs in the world for that. But anyways, there was a new study that came out on the increase in endurance performance. Just came out this month, increase in endurance performance. Uh, via the consumption of caffeine. And of, of course, the conclusion wasn't surprising. Caffeine ingestion improved performance during high-intensity whole-body exercise. But what was interesting was the way that it actually worked. Uh, it was described in the study as exercise-induced reduction in voluntary activation and contractile function. So a friend who's actually been on the podcast before, Alex Hutchinson, he wrote an article about this study in Outside Magazine, and I'll link to that article, but there's there's been a lot of hypotheses in the past, hypotheses, I suppose I should say, in the past about the way that caffeine works so well as a performance enhancement aid. I mean, to the effect that I, I think there was a time when it was banned, correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, if you recall this, it was banned by the World Anti-Doping Association. I actually didn't realize that. At least in, in, in certain amounts, you know, I think it was like 400 milligrams or, or more, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so, so potent, especially if you don't consume any for about two weeks, and then you put it back into your system. I mean, it, it's absolutely astounding in terms of, you know, tension and vigilance and, you know, physical exertion. So anyways, the theory that uh, that predominated for a while was that caffeine blocks the receptors that detect the presence of adenosine, which is the molecule associated with fatigue as it builds up in the brain. The so-called sleep drive that you get as the day goes on and on is because you get more adenosine in the system. And you know, if you haven't been sucking down too much coffee, a little less caffeine to keep that adenosine from working properly. So the idea uh, for a while was that caffeine blocked this fatigue buildup in the brain so you didn't get sleepy. Uh, and then uh, there was uh, another, uh, basically a, um, a theory that it enhanced fatty acid uptake, which is also true to, to give muscles a little bit more energy. And that may also be one of the levels that it works on. Uh, and then this newer study is actually suggesting that there's an additional factor and that's related to oxygen levels in your blood. So the, the study that I was just talking about uh, what what they were looking at via electrical stimulation was the voluntary activation of these muscles. Uh, you basically electronically stimulate a muscle and the force produced by the shock allows you to calculate this voluntary activation. And so the more tired you get when you exercise, the weaker the signals from your brain become. And then with caffeine, what they found was those signals never decline. What's called the voluntary activation from the brain to the muscle never declined. But then what they also found was that caffeine was allowing for a really significant amount of oxygen to be flowing into the arteries of these folks who were on the caffeine. So it turns out that it's not only blocking adenosine receptors, increasing the ability to use fatty acid as a fuel, but also decreasing any resistance to a signal that's sent by the brain, this whole voluntary activation thing, and then finally increasing the ability of the muscles to uptake oxygen. 
And so, you know, you, you hear about the discovery of coffee from a guy's goats, I think, way back in the day, eating coffee beans. And this guy seeing his goats have tons of energy and eventually fermenting that same bean to make coffee. Well, I mean, it turns out that those goats probably could have won the Tour de France because, I mean, that this caffeine just works so well on so many levels. That's it. So, Holy grail. Yeah. So so this this reading about this got me thinking, well, gosh, this is great. We all, we all know caffeine's pretty good. But uh, what if you don't like it? Or what if you want to get some of these effects and you, you want even better effects? So I thought it'd be interesting to tell folks about three things that I think can make coffee work better or that act as a pretty good alternative to coffee or that um, can basically be something you combine or, or go back and forth with in addition to coffee. Mm -hmm. Or I'm kind of using coffee and caffeine simultaneously here. Right. So the first one was actually formulated by a friend of mine who's been on the podcast before. His name is Sean Wells. It was kind of funny. We were actually talking yesterday, and then I, I'd been thinking about this stuff yesterday, and then he, he texted me out of the blue, which is kind of funny. Uh, but anyways, caffeine, when it gets metabolized in the body, gets metabolized actually into three different things, one called paraxanthine, one called theobromine, and one called theophylline. Okay, that, that's what it gets broken down into. Now, paraxanthine is something that you can actually take all on its own. It's a central nervous system stimulant like coffee is, but it's got way higher potency with lower toxicity and less of an effect to, to make you kind of like anxious or jittery. So, so a lot of people compare the way that you feel on paraxanthine to, to modafinil, you know, like that limitless drug, the so-called provigil that a lot of people will use. You know, it's an off-label uh, anti-narcoleptic agent. But anyways, paraxanthine has this really cool feel-good, wake-promoting effect. And a lot of people who don't want caffeine or who would want an alternative to caffeine, I wouldn't, this isn't why I combine with caffeine, uh, but I think that it works better. It's obviously a little bit, well, not obviously, but folks should know it's a little more expensive, a little bit harder to get your hands on. But paraxanthine, spelled with X, P-A-R-A-X-A-N-T-H-I-N-E, paraxanthine, it's got some really robust effects as far as the, the wake promotion uh, ability of it. But unlike something like modafinil, you also have a real, real kind of like feel good effect when you're on it. And I, you know, I, a long time ago, uh, Sean had sent me a, like a little uh, bottle of, of the capsules of paraxanthine. And I don't know if those are available to purchase anywhere. There, there's one energy drink company I know of called uh, Upgrade that makes like packaged paraxanthine energy drinks and they had sent me some of those some time back and i, I like those quite a bit uh, i i haven't been using paraxanthine that much i'm sure you can buy it on amazon but anyway so paraxanthine is interesting have you tried that one before jay no no i think i've heard of it before but i've never i've never tried it yeah i mean they, I, 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 yeah. I love my caffeine from coffee man so i just kind of yeah. don't divert too much i don't know they call it caffeine evolved you know it's a, it's at least worth a try yeah. if you like to experiment with stuff that give you energy so so paraxanthine is one interesting one to look into and and uh and that that drink again it's called it's called upgrade but i'm sure there's got to be some other sources of it on on amazon or, or people can go to the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash 449 let me know where you like to get paraxanthine if it's something that you use. Uh, but then the, the next one, like I mentioned, caffeine gets broken down into a few different molecules, including paraxanthine. But another one it gets broken down into is theobromine. Now, theobromine, you're probably familiar with as uh, what, what's found in chocolate. 
Theobromine crosses the blood-brain barrier. It binds to adenosine receptors, just like caffeine does, to improve things like mood and vigilance. But theobromine actually has this really cool feel-good effect. It has almost like this bliss-inducing effect. It's one of the primary components of chocolate or cacao, which is why chocolate can kind of pick you up a little bit, both mentally and physically. But the interesting thing about theobromine that caffeine or coffee doesn't have going for it quite so much is it's a really, really good smooth muscle relaxant and cardiac stimulant. Okay, so you get these these positive effects in pleasure, but you also get kind of like this uh, this this relaxation and smooth muscle, which, which is I mean that's one of the reasons that caffeine can induce a little bit of a bowel movement in the morning. But it's not the caffeine so much as it is the theobromine, and furthermore, the theobromine gives you the alertness without quite as much jitteriness. So this is interesting because first of all, if you don't want to get full on into all the wakefulness promoting benefits of coffee, but you still want kind of that feel good, uh, you know, smooth muscle relaxing, bowel movement inducing, you know, cardiovascular health effect, you can actually drink uh, cacao or, or or use like theobromine instead. And and so case in point, I use this stuff called my cacao. It's these de- dehydrated cacao nibs and cacao shells you can mix with hot water like tea, unlike say, you know, hot chocolate, like Swiss Miss hot chocolate. It doesn't have sugar. It doesn't have any calories in it. It's just, you know, the, the stuff that has theobromine in it that when steeped in well, what I use is a French press, steeped in the hot water from a French press, gives you tons of concentrated theobromine. And what's also cool is you can combine, it's kind of like turkey and cranberries, you can combine caffeine with theobromine. That's very simple. All I'll do is I'll just make coffee in a French press but I'll go half coffee beans, you know, half ground coffee beans and half uh, c- cacao nibs and cacao shells from this company, My Cacao. So that that's another one that I really like. And it just kind of takes the edge off of like the the jitteriness that you can get from caffeine because it kind of mellows it out a little bit. You know, I don't I don't find that it, that it seems to take the jitteriness off as much. What I was saying about that was yeah. like if you were to just drink cacao all by itself, you get some of the effects of coffee without the jitteriness. When you combine it with the coffee, it's not as though you get a, a, a drop in the jitteriness of the coffee. I'll tell you in a second what you can do for that. But what you get is is uh, this really nice feel-good bliss effect. And then the smooth muscle mm-hmm. relaxation is even better when you combine the caffeine with the cacao derivative. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so we got parazanthine. We got theobromine. And then the last one, and I think more people probably know about this one, is L-theanine. And L-theanine is the one that if you if you take it at the same time as coffee, A, it makes coffee or caffeine last longer, but it's like this slow bleed into the system, which is super good to know for people who have taken like that genetic test that shows if you're like a slow coffee metabolizer and they just get all jittery from coffee. Well, if you put a little L-theanine in with your coffee, it helps out a lot with that effect. And the other interesting thing is they've studied the uh, effects of drinking caffeine with and without L-theanine on cognition and mood. And they found that the cognitive enhancing and mood promoting effects of coffee or caffeine are enhanced when you add L-theanine to it. Now, L-theanine is very, very easy to find as a supplement. You can buy like bulk L-theanine powder on Amazon, but the dose, like average, yeah, average cup of coffee is about 100 milligrams. 
and and yep. and you you can put about 100 milligrams of L-theanine powder in the coffee. It doesn't doesn't taste bad or anything. It's got, in my opinion, pretty neutral flavor. And that's a really, really great way to kind of like upgrade your cup of coffee in a pretty inexpensive manner. That I, I haven't talked to a single person who who has used L-theanine, like about 100 milligrams of their coffee, and not reported that they just, they, they think it's a much, much better experience. Dude, yeah. It's my go-to every single day, man. I know yeah. I've said that on this show before, but like, uh, I'm one of those people, I have never been tested to see whether or not I am a slow metabolizer, but I think I am simply due to the fact that I get caffeine jitters if I have too much. But if I throw L-theanine on there, which I do almost every day, like those just seem to dissipate or disappear yeah. completely. It's uh, It's an interesting molecule for sure. Yeah. I know a lot of people ask me because you know, because I have like a like Keon. We do coffee. We have really good, flavorful, organic coffee. If I don't say so myself, and a lot of people are, like, well, why don't you just start like you know mixing L-theanine in there with the coffee beans? Problem is, once you start mixing stuff with the coffee beans, I think you do. I'm just huge on the flavor of the coffee, and it does bastardize the coffee just the, just a little bit. Like I, I just find you know any, I think it does. Anytime you add something, there there might be ways around this, like. Um, gosh, is that one guy, uh, I, Ian Mitchell, who I've had on my podcast before. I know, I, I think he's doing, um, uh, Dave Asprey's coffee and, and Dave has a coffee that he's like putting, I haven't tried it before. I think it's called danger coffee. He's putting minerals and things like that. in. I haven't had the chance to taste it yet. I just haven't, but Ian apparently has some really good process for being able to like infuse stuff into coffee beans or like coat coffee beans without affecting the flavor. And if that's the case, yeah. you know, theoretically, he could do something like that with L-theanine and coffee beans. But I, I haven't even looked into it. I don't know how it would affect margins and things like that. And, and right. anyways, though, but it's, it's, it's simple enough to just get the powder and add it. Yeah, yeah. And I would say go that route because I've tried at least two, maybe three brands that they pre-grind their coffee beans and then yeah. just mix the L-theanine in. And it just, it, it to me, it completely derails the flavor of the coffee, especially if you're used to doing like I do, which is I grind my beans fresh every single morning, you know, about 20 seconds prior to pouring hot water over it. And so I think it's a, it's probably a mixture of, you know, those beans have been ground for quite some time. Plus the L-theanine is already mixed in. And I've just found that flavor wise. Um, and I mean, the feel wise, maybe it's okay, but the flavor wise, just not, not, not a fan. Yeah. And I, I think that pre ground can affect the flavor. Uh, and then, you know, we, we looked into this like at, at Keon and, we use the the nitrogen flush packaging there and uh, and it seems like the packaging can help out with that a little bit cuz basically when you pre-grind it you're just exposing more of the bean to oxidation right and so the packaging becomes right. all the more important in a situation like that and then we're, we're we're pretty keen on on a really really good packaging process at Keon but even then like if i have to choose between like Keon ground Versus Keon whole bean, I'm still like one of those coffee connoisseurs who who kind of argues for the superiority of the whole bean. So, um, but we <laughs> do have ground. I, I like to use ground when I travel, or you know, if I if I am not going to have time to to grind, but otherwise, yeah, I'd go for whole bean. All right, so right. Uh, people just learn more about coffee and caffeine and theobromine and parazanthine than they probably ever wanted to. So we'll probably stop there, but. Uh, Anyways, that's the skinny on caffeine, and it's, again, like, I, I think it's just amazing. If I had to choose any molecule as a smart drug, that'd be the one. All right, so not to gross you out, but if you don't want to accidentally take a laxative or do an enema, 
and have what could potentially be the worst day of your life, then listen to this. If you're currently taking a magnesium supplement, the chances are you're flushing it down the toilet. And I mean that literally because the most common type of magnesium is actually a laxative. So if you take it, you're literally pooping and peeing it out, which is kind of weird because 80% of the folks who are magnesium deficient could actually be making their deficiency worse by taking magnesium. I even heard one medical practitioner refer to what happens when you take the wrong magnesium product as constorea, kind of this weird combination of constipation and diarrhea. And a magnesium deficiency is, I mean, it's a big deal. Your metabolism suffers. You can't lose weight. Your blood pressure goes up. And the worst part is your sleep suffers tremendously. You can also get constipated. So the solution is to not use these magnesium supplements that just drain you and drain your intestines and to instead use magnesium that's actually well absorbed. This stuff that I use is called magnesium breakthrough. It's seven different forms of magnesium, unique forms your body can actually absorb and what they're going to do is this month, the company that makes it by optimizers, they're going to include free bottles of their full line of digestive health products on select orders, what supplies last. So you get free products to try to support your digestive system. And then they also have the magnesium breakthrough, which further helps your digestive system. And it's a pretty good deal, if you ask me. So the offer is available at magbreakthrough.com slash Ben. That's M-A-G breakthrough.com slash Ben. Same magnesium I've been using. I love it. Uh, code Ben10 gets you 10% off of any order. No more constipation, no more diarrhea, no more poor sleep because uh, magnesium is super duper helpful to address all those things and many, many others. So enjoy magbreakthrough.com slash Ben and to code Ben10. What mattress do I sleep on? Well, I'm picky. I'm very picky. I wanted a mattress that blocks EMF, that increases deep sleep cycles based on my actual measurements, that actively cools my body even if I can't use one of those fancy bed top cooling thingamajigs, accelerates recovery, something my wife likes and I like, something that doesn't off-gas a bunch of chemicals, something that is designed using your health in mind and nothing else. No fancy bells or whistles or Wi-Fi or gadgets or springs or anything. Okay, this is like sleeping on the most natural surface imaginable. They've even done what's called dark film microscopy on people's blood cells when they sleep on this mattress. And it actually allows your blood cells, your freaking blood cells, to return to a natural free-flowing state. That allows your bloodstream to optimize the oxygen flowing through your body, improves your body's nighttime recovery cycle, improves your sleep quality. Sleep is so important to me. You know that. I'm super picky. I don't just sleep on stuff because people like give it to me. I sleep on stuff because I do the research and this mattress is top of the top. Essentia, E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A. You go to My Essentia, M-Y-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A, myessentia.com. Slash Ben Greenfield. Use code Ben VIP. That'll get you an additional hundred dollars off your Essentia mattress. So myessentia.com slash Ben Greenfield and use code Ben VIP. Let's talk about ketones. I get tons of questions about drinkable ketones. I did a podcast uh, with the folks uh, from a company called HVMN. They make this stuff called Ketone IQ, and they had sent me a bunch to try. And essentially, it's like this cheat code on ketosis because you drink them and you achieve the same level of brain and metabolism boosting ketones as you get if you were fasting or engaged in excessive carbohydrate restriction, both of which here and there can have their health benefits. Uh, but by drinking the ketones, you generate like almost 30% more energy more efficiently 
than sugar alone. So it allows you to do more with less. Like when I used to use these things when I'd race Ironman triathlon, meaning ketone esters, I would be able to consume like a quarter of the normal amount of carbs that I'd normally have to consume to get me through a whole race. So Ketone IQ had a $6 million contract from the U.S. Department of Defense and partnerships with a bunch of researchers in ketone science. And they created this truly kind of cutting edge drink. Uh, it, was, it was really called Ketone 1.0. Now it's called Ketone IQ. Gives you ton of energy with no insulin spikes, no caffeine jitters, no mid-afternoon energy crashes. You don't really think about food at all after you have one of these. Like sometimes I get annoyed because I'll have one and then wind up at a restaurant and not be as much of a foodie as I usually am because I'm not hungry. It works that well. So they're called ketone esters. Visit hvmn.me slash benji and use code benji20 for 20% off any purchase of ketone IQ hvmn.me and use code beng20 for 20% off any purchase of this ketone IQ stuff. That's an exclusive offer for you. So next, I wanted to uh, touch on an interesting article that I don't think is going to be like a huge news flash to anybody, but it was on a website called The Conversation. And, you know, I'm into looking into, you know, natural effects of sunlight and just generally, you know, how we can be closer to nature. And this article was interesting. It talked about how we used to, as human beings, be better able to withstand radiation from the sun, which I think is kind of interesting. So uh, I think it was when I interviewed a guy named uh, Matt Maruka, who makes those blue light blocking glasses. Uh, he talked about how he had learned from uh, Jack Cruz, who's also been on the podcast, about the the, the benefits of building up a skin callus, called a skin callus, which uh, seems like it would make anyone in the beauty industry just recoil in horror at the idea of putting a <laughs> callus on you know anywhere except the back of your hands. But anyways, the skin responds to routine exposure to the sun by becoming thicker, like the epidermis becomes thicker. It adds more layers of cells. And for a lot of people, the skin gets darker, you know, that whole tanning effect because of this protective pigment that gets created called eumelanin. Now, interestingly, eumelanin is not created in as high an amount if you're blocking the exposure of the retina to sunlight. This means that you don't tan as well if you're wearing sunglasses, which I think a lot of people don't know. You, you'll rarely see me wearing sunglasses. One of the reasons for that is because you absorb more damaging ultraviolet radiation when you're wearing sunglasses. It's, it's not mm -hmm. like so much more that if you got to trade your, you know, your cool look for, for the tanning effect that you're just absolutely screwed. But I just, I'm just not a fan of wearing sunglasses unless I'm out skiing or, you know, on a boat all day or something like that. But Anyway, so eumelanin also absorbs damaging ultraviolet radiation, right? So, so it makes the skin dark, but it helps to absorb a lot of the damaging radiation. And there was this, uh, this, this study that was, uh, it was called the Evolution of Human Skin Pigmentation. It, it came out a few months ago in uh, the, in a, uh, what journal was it? In? It was some, some like skin journal, no surprises there. But what they found was that the, the evolution of human skin pigmentation has come along quite a ways in terms of the skin color of a lot of our ancestors being much darker, uh, probably because not only were they outdoors more, but they weren't using as many skin protectants and skin coverings. And, and so uh, they, they, they essentially had skin that adapted to regular exposure to sunlight to the extent to where they were more protected against radiation, lower risk for skin cancer and sunburns, and basically, the the skin wasn't 
undamaged, right? They probably still had a little bit of like a leathery, wrinkled appearance that, that you'd see in someone who's been in the sun all the time. But this melanin upregulation can actually protect a little bit from some of the some of the wrinkles and, and some of the damage that actually does occur due to the, the radiative effect. Now, this article does go into the fact that there 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 was a time when people began to start protecting themselves from the sun. They probably figured out, oh, this giant light in the sky can kind of mess you up if you spend too much time in it. And these sunburns hurt. They hurt like heck. So they you know developed parasols and umbrellas and hats and tents and you know muds and coconut oils and different pastes and minerals and you know eventually. We came along and, and developed the uh, the chemical cocktail that today we call sunscreen. But the reason I wanted to, to highlight this article is that I personally went from being a sunscreen fiend who was like sponsored by sunscreen companies back when I was racing Ironman triathlon. And I was that guy who was just like white all the time, but not white because of my skin color, you know, white because I had sunscreen all over me to becoming more aware that you need vitamin D and that you can harness it from sunlight and not slathering sunscreen on every time I'd go out in the sun to getting to the point where last year I wore sunscreen twice out of 365 days of the year. And there were a few other days where I put coconut oil on my skin, which has a natural SPF of six to eight. I had a fantastic tan. My skin felt great. I never got burnt. And I think it's because I gradually worked myself up to the point year after year to where I put on a little bit less and a little bit less sunscreen. And my rule, my only rule I have with 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 sun exposure is A, I never burn, meaning if I, I either won't go out long enough to burn or I'll stay away from the sun during the times of day when I'd be at a higher risk of burning. Or if there is a high risk of burning, which would have been just two days last year, I was out in the sun for like 10 hours, I will put on sunscreen. On days where I get a little bit less exposure, I'll put a little bit of that coconut oil on. But it, but besides my rule that I just don't let myself burn, which I think is pretty reasonable, I just went through last year without having any fear at all of the sun. And I feel as though this idea of building up a skin callus and training your body how to make its own protective melanin is something that might well, save you some money on sunscreen, but perhaps also increase your exposure to beneficial light from the sun and decrease your exposure to potential carcinogens from sunscreen. So, you know, I don't know if I just gave a whole bunch of people skin cancer uh, and, and, <laughs> and, you know, and harmed a lot of sunscreen companies by saying that. And again, there's a time and a place for sunscreen. I mean, hell, I, uh, you know, I, I have sent people many times to like the, the environmental working group website, you know, to go find, you know, healthy forms of sunscreen. There's like the, was a badger balm, I think makes, make some and you know there's there's a lot of decent sunscreen companies out there that guy interviewed a uh, nick norris i like his company protect that was one that i used on one of those days when i did wear sunscreen but anyways and if you are gonna wear sunscreen i think the face you know with the thinner levels of, of skin is the one place to protect but i just thought it was an interesting article i'll link to it in the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash 449 and do you wear sunscreen much jay yeah, it's great. Great question. So I basically only wear sunscreen like one week out of the year because we have a recurring like we've done this geez for probably 20 plus years uh, vacation that we take just as a as a broad family out to the beach uh, and we stay like on the ocean. So, you know, it gets in here in South Carolina, it gets uh, pretty, pretty hot, pretty bright. And so that week I will. And even then, um, I utilize like a zinc based uh, sunscreen from that company native. I think they do a pretty good one. Yeah, um, it seems to be yeah, pretty clear. 
brand. clean ingredients. Yeah, yeah, like native. Uh, but that's that's about it. Um, you know, I I kind of. I, I never thought about it as like a skin callus. I think that makes total sense uh, from a vernacular standpoint. But you know, for me, like I'm all, I'm pretty much just like anytime I can get outside and get some sun, I do it. But I am never out long enough without sunscreen to to get burnt. So I think to your point, it's very similar to kind of like what you do. It's like I'm not avoiding the sun, and when I do, I don't put on sunscreen unless I'm out at the beach. Like we'll be out for twelve. 13, 14 hours at a time. Um, and a lot of that time, too, it's pretty light. And if I can stay under any form of shading, like an umbrella or something, I'm going to do that out at the, out at the beach, but mm-hmm. then get my sun as well. It's kind of just go in and out, in and out. And I, and I'm pretty sensitive enough, at least in, in terms of feel sensation wise. Like I, I know when like my skin is getting a little bit tender and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm at the point where I probably should either put on more sunscreen or I should go back under some level of covering. And I think yeah. it just takes time. I think people, unfortunately, like they just say, oh, well, you know what? I can just get as much sun as possible. Let me just go out there and they do it. And they get burnt and then the rest of their whatever vacation or week off is is ruined yeah. because they're in so much pain. Um, so I think it's just it's knowing thyself. Yeah. Next, while we're talking about sunscreen, we might as well talk about something else that's popular and has lots of controversy about whether or not it's healthy or unhealthy. That's red meat. Red meat. Mm. I don't think we need to spend too much time on this um, because I know all of our listeners love steak uh, or or um, what do they call it? Uh, tofu steak. I was at a restaurant the other day and they had, um, it wasn't tofu steak. It was, uh, gosh, they had like a vegan menu and a meat. It's actually a really good restaurant. It's called Mizuna restaurant, really great farm to table restaurant in Spokane that I brought some of my friends to, but it's kind of funny. They had like the green menu and the brown menu and the green menu just got, you know, all plants on it. It was a, uh, it it was a, gosh, now I'm, I'm blanking. It wasn't a tofurkey. Oh, I remember it was. It was meatless meatloaf, meatless meatloaf. <laughs> and whenever I see that, oh. I'm just like, God, well, why do you have to pretend it's meat? Just call it loaf. Yeah, I know. Veg- vegetable loaf or, or Satan loaf, I think is made out of the, the you know, Satan uh, tofu stuff, which I think is an odd name, but, you know, mm. just pure gluten Satan. tofu, S-A-I-T-A-N. So anyways, though. Keep it, keeping you away from it. That's what they're trying uh, to do. Well, so whether, whether you're a meatless meatloaf person or a meat meatloaf person, this is interesting. So you've no doubt been familiarized with this uh, global burden of diseases study, even though you may not know it by that name. It was published in The Lancet in 2019. It was the one that basically said that a diet high in red meat was reported to be responsible for like 900,000 deaths, which is kind of odd because the 2017 analysis like two years earlier, only attributed 25,000 deaths to red meat, right? And red meat was actually the Mm -hmm. least important of 15 different dietary risk factors that they recorded. So if you do the math, over two years, somehow uh, red meat intake risk of death increased 36-fold, right? And so there's there's a little bit interesting statistics at play here. And what happened was that... uh, they they got called out on it. The Lancet Journal got called out on it. Most recently by the World Cancer Research Fund. They they joined mm. a, a group of, of a noticeably large group of scientists calling out this study, raising concerns about the questionable statistics used in the study, the inadequacy of the ability to be able to replicate many of these studies. And essentially, their statement kind of summed it up. What the what the World Cancer Research Fund said 
was following our review of the evidence related to unprocessed red meat, we concluded that red and processed meat are causal contributors to the development of colorectal cancer, which I think is reasonable, by the way. I think, I think it's processed, not unprocessed. And then they said, mm-hmm. um, they said, nevertheless, neither us nor other international organizations recommend complete avoidance of meat. In many diets worldwide, red meat is an important source of several nutrients. Removing meat from such diets is impractical and unrealistic and carries a risk of nutritional deficiency judged to outweigh future cancer risk. The absence of an explicit rationale for the assumptions underlying the global burden of disease study estimates is troublesome, unsupported by the evidence, and unrealistic. So there you have it. Basically, there you have it. Um, and, and again, they did a good job differentiating between you know, the old birdies beef sticks or whatever they are at the gas station and like a nice grass fed, grass finished chunk of red meat from your local farmer or whatever. So, so basically, you know, the, 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 the sourcing matters and also understand that there, there's a lot of funky business that goes on behind the scenes and we don't have to get into it. There's whole documentaries, you know, made about, I don't know, Bill Gates and whatever. Like I, I don't get caught up in a lot of that, but what I can tell you is that you can't throw it all under the bus. Right, the pow- powdered mm-hmm. eggs that you get from the college cafeteria in a giant aluminum foil lined bin are different than eggs you gather from chickens in the backyard. Right, again, any any food, the sourcing matters, but ultimately, you know, this just backs up the fact that when you see the headlines that say red meat's going to kill you, you got to dig just a little bit deeper, and you got to understand a lot of scientists don't agree with that claim. Yeah, it's it's it's. I know uh, I'm just kind of repeating myself here on from, you know, from previous podcasts where I've talked about this, but I think this is why it lends itself, unfortunately, to a lot of distrust um, to the nutritional science community, to the you know nutritional research community, is because like you have some of these things, and it's almost like were you trying to intentionally fool us? Were you trying to manipulate the data? And you know, it causes us to be somewhat cynical, or I'll say it causes me to be somewhat cynical. I don't want put words in other people's mouth but uh yeah it's like there's it seems like there's always two sides to the story when it comes to nutritional science and research and (laughs) yeah depends who's making the money but anyways i i I think we're probably preaching to the choir but yeah i I just thought i'd bring that up that was interesting all right so um i'm more and more into feel good things these days i'm reading a great book right now the good life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. This book just came out, randomly showed up on my doorstep at Books Seem to Do These Days. And, you know, I, I guess the book didn't surprise me. It was a good reminder, this book was, about the importance of relationships and meaningful human connections. Because when you isolate for all the other variables of longevity that they found in this study, it was basically like, relationships in all forms, friendships, romantic partnerships, families, coworkers, you know, pickleball partners, book club members, Bible study groups, like you name it. This was the one thing from the longest Harvard study on happiness that has ever been done leads to, you know, as the book says, a, a good life, right? And so uh, they looked at all these different variables. Now, there were some other things that were interesting, like they found that authenticity, just being yourself, you know, instead of who the world expects you to be, which is a common deathbed regret. That's that's something that it, that that also contributed. So did service, right? Uh, charity, uh, being involved in the local community, helping other people, even when nothing comes back to you. Uh, openness was another big one, just like being radically honest and transparent. I think all, I think all these are fantastic, and honestly, all of them are conducive to better, healthier, long term relationships. But 
this idea of social connections being so, so important as backed up by other, uh, other, uh, articles that I've talked about in the past, uh, analog relation, not necessarily digital metaverse relationships, your friends on Facebook, but actual, you know, hardcore flesh and blood relationships. Uh, it, it protects your brain. It protects your body. And it was the number one contributor to a long life. And I bring that up for two reasons. A, just to make pe- sure people are aware in case they never get a chance to check out this study and never get a chance to read the book, just make time to spend with friends, carve out time to spend with friends and family members. And, and it's not that hard. I mean, I, I, my team knows like my, my scheduling assistant knows we set aside four evenings every month to have people over for dinner. A lot of times it's more than that. Sometimes it's like, you know, eight to 10, uh, did I say mornings? I meant evenings. Uh, I feel like no, I, I just said morning. Maybe say I did say mornings. evenings. Yeah, I don't I know. Yeah. So we don't have people over for dinner in the morning, even though that'd be fun. Uh, we have, uh, you know, pancake parties at the Greenfields, but we, um, we have dinner parties, right? And then family counts too, right? So we have our family dinners every night. We have our family meditations and hugs in the morning, family meditations and hugs in the evening. Uh, you know, we, we carve out time, intentionally carve out time. In the same way you intentionally carve out time for one-on-one dates with a spouse or one-on-one dates with a child. Or you know, my wife and I will even intentionally carve out and schedule time for sex. I mean, like, if you make it intentional, this idea of making relationships happen and you don't necessarily do it because you're going to live a long time. You do it because you're going to love people. And a side benefit is living a, a long time and a good life. Uh, it's it's actually, it's it's really, really beneficial. And despite me saying that and telling people, I just summed it all up for you. I think people should read this book, The Good Life, because there's something about knowing something is good for you. And then the thing I like about this book is it's got lots of really great anecdotes from from old people about how they carved out time for relationships and how they found that the time spent with their kid on a fishing boat was way more important than all the money in the world. And you know, it, it's just a book that, as I'm reading it, you know, it's, it's one of my bedtime books and you know, one of my nighttime books. And I just, I, I have it up by the bed stands. Great book, written by Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz, who I think were part of the Harvard Research Study, or, or, or they, they were the scientists who helped to coordinate that study. So, anyways, the longest happiness study shows that a, a key to a good life is relationships. Again, I think most people know that, but it's it's just so important to be reminded about it. Yeah, and no, it's great. And you need to to be reminded on it. And the main reason is is because in the health and wellness, fitness kind of communities and domain the focus tends to be very much on the self and how can we improve ourselves. And it tends to somewhat not focus on community development and interconnectedness and relationships and social life. Sometimes it's kind of talked about because it seems like it's a good filler, throw that in. Cause yeah, yeah, we kind of see the studies of how, you know, relationships can be helpful in regards to overall health and well-being. but it's not the primary focus. And for me as a psychologist, it's quite easy to make this kind of the thing that I, I talk to a clientele about or patients about is making relationships and community the focus because we are inherently relational and communal beings. And if we disregard that solely for the self, it's not to say not to work on the self, but if we kind of disregard that aspect, then uh, there's, a, there's a huge void there. There always is with people um, that I find that that don't focus on this aspect. So great, yeah. uh, great stuff. And kind of related to this, there's this idea of going out of your way to be generous for people as being one way to connect with other human beings. 
This is the last thing I wanted to mention before we take a few questions from our Twitter audience. This article was just so great. It was a simple read. I think it was like an eight-minute read. Get it done. You can get it done.com. Posted 50 ways to be ridiculously generous and feel ridiculously good. I'm not going to read all 50. I'm not going to list all 50. But just to give you a little bit of a flavor of a few of these that are just so simple. Find a little free library near you. And they even link to where you can find them all. Littlefreelibrary.org. And donate a book. Uh, If you see a couple and they're trying to take a selfie of themselves while on a romantic date or trip. Be that person who asks them if they would like you to take the photo for them. Offer to help. And then extra credit you can ask. How did you two meet? Send a bouquet of flowers to a random person you don't even know. Uh, um, th- th- this one's kind of interesting. Start your day by sending out one email specifically designed to help somebody else without directly benefiting you at all. Uh, another one was, uh, this one's pretty simple. You know, buy a coffee or meal for a stranger, you know, like standing in line behind you at a, at a restaurant or a coffee shop. Uh, it, it's got one link in there where you can turn a photo from your smartphone into a postcard using a website called postgramap.com and send a postcard to somebody, uh, like, like a, like an analog, like a postcard that arrives in their mailbox. People still have mailboxes these days, uh, gourmet ice cream delivery, how to buy gifts for total strangers. Uh, there, there's a lot of good ones there. Did you read it by the way, Jed? Did you check this one out? I did. Yeah. I love, okay. I love stuff like yeah, this. Any, yeah. any favorites leap out to you? Yeah, the uh, the one that I, I thought was really interesting that stood out to me because I was like, this would be kind of difficult and I don't know how I would handle it is buy a gift for a total stranger. So uh, I was like, oh man, that's that's kind of tough for me because it's I'm a pretty social individual, but just kind of buying a gift for somebody and giving to them, I could see how they'd be quite generous and then maybe it would really lighten, you know, light up their day. But yeah, it, it could be kind of tough. But yeah, there was a lot, lot, lot in here that I really enjoyed. Well, a lot of people share their wish list publicly on Amazon. Uh, you can go to people's profiles on Amazon. You can see their wish list and you can buy them something and it makes it super simple, right? You just click on the thing and buy it and it gets delivered yeah. to them. Yeah. I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Number 45 was pretty good. I like number 45 the best. Leave a rave review for your favorite podcast. Five stars. <laughs> nice <plug>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so I, I would challenge everyone. So here's my challenge before we turn to our Twitter questions. Go read this article. So I'll link to it, bengreenfieldlife.com slash 449. Let's say we've got like, let's say like a thousand people listen to this podcast. I think more than that listen, but let's just say like a thousand people listen. I'm horrible with metrics. I don't even know how many people listen to this podcast. I, I hope at least a thousand. But anyways, let's... More than a thousand. All right. So, so let, let's say like a thousand people listen to this one today in particular. If a thousand people went out and chose one thing off of this list and did it, just imagine what the exponential benefits of that would be. So that's my challenge. Everybody listening, you don't have to drop what you're doing right now, but make a little note to yourself, you know, write on your hand if you're like my mom with a Sharpie or take a note in your phone or, or, you know, or bookmark it or whatever. But go choose one and just do it. Even if just, just buy somebody coffee. You know? so, so that's my challenge to folks. Let's make this world a better place today and go and do it. So mostly so we can all live a long time because we, we now know that that will help with that and, uh, and try it out. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes and, uh, let's go ahead and take some questions. What do you think, Jay? Oh, let's go, man. Okay. So this is the part of the show where, uh, if you have a question, I'll bring it up on whatever they call it, the stage and I'll, I'll answer your question. Now there was, I think there was a guy 
who who was like asking like maybe it was Jack. I think it was Jack or Josh it was a J. I think the last Q and A they like didn't get their question answered because I ran out of time. So you know what I'm, I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna bring Jack up first. Jack, go ahead. Ben and Jay, third time is the charm. Thank you guys. Oh, so so it was you? It was me. Yep. Oh, nice. cool. I, I, rem- this, I remember correctly. <laughs> the funny thing is I have class during this time, so it's hard to try to run to the bathroom when the teacher's talking and try to get on Twitter spaces really quick. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you have a 20-year-old. Uh, college kids love listening to your thing. I'm from SMU. And part-time for, you know, when I try to pay college tuition, I take care of dogs. And I notice that every time I have a dog and the owner gives me their kibble or whatever, the dog never wants to eat the food. And I always go, what the heck? Why isn't the dog eating the food? And they're like, oh, he's just, uh, he grazes or whatever. And I know that's not how dogs work. Anyways, I end up feeding them raw beef and they eat it till the very brink, you know? So my question is, if you guys have animals, but I know you have a few, what, what are your, some of these principles that you guys share for on how to feed animals, not just humans, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, believe it or not, wolves don't eat carrots. So let's let's dive into that. I mean, in in short, the very very quick and brief answer to your question is that our dogs eat uh, what's called the barf diet, uh, which sounds nasty, but it, but it it yeah, actually it means two things. It either stands for bones and raw food, or it stands for biologically appropriate raw food. And this started way back in the day when they had like racing greyhounds and sled dogs and high performance animals. and They're trying to figure out the best way to feed them. Turns out, no surprises here, but uncooked meat, usually muscle and organ meat, often blended up with a little bit of like whole or crushed bones. A little bit of fruit, occasional vegetables, some raw eggs and some dairy, almost kind of like a kind of liberal carnivore diet. But for dogs is something that seemed to enhance performance pretty significantly. Now, no surprises here that, you know, most vets in the, in most of the American veterinary you know, medical association, they're not on board with that. And for the same reason that the American medical association is on board with a raw diet for humans, because they say they can contain, you know, the, the, the meat can contain a lot of deadly pathogens that could cause your pet to become sick. I, gosh, I, I don't know how many wolves are dropping dead of Giardia, but I, I really <laughs> highly doubt that that's a that's a problem. They they also say that, you know, there's a potential a dog might break its teeth or get an internal intestinal puncture from bones. And we don't really give our animals much bones. And it, you know, we'll, we'll like grind up eggshells and things like that for a little extra calcium. But we are we're actually somewhat careful with the bones. And you also got to realize that as with any dietary shift, you know, humans who shift to a carnival diet, they get diarrhea sometimes for weeks. Same thing with your dog. Like it'll mess up their bowels a little bit. And you don't want to give your dog like raw beef for breakfast and leave it in the house for the day and not expect something to go south if they're not accustomed to that type of diet. But you can find some really, really great so-called barf diets for for pets online, you know, where you'll use like a food processor and you can process up a little bit of like fruits and vegetables, say maybe a little, a little carrot and some apple. But then you add your beef, you add a little bit, a little bit of egg, you add some eggshells, you blend this all up. And you feed it to the dog, and there there are some companies that'll do kind of like um kind of almost like a, a dried version of a of a raw dog diet where it, you're just basically looking for grain free or or another search term be like paleo friendly 
uh, dog food where you can still buy it in a bag, but it doesn't have all the grains and the vegetable oils and all the stuff that's notoriously bad for, you know, bad for any biological organism in general in the dog foods. So you don't necessarily have to prepare all this yourself. But yeah, I mean, you, you can go to a butcher, you can get you can get all the bulk, you know, muscles and organs and stuff that they're going to get rid of or not use anyways. You can bring that home, you can freeze it, you can food process it, and you can pretty much make your pet their own raw food. And that's how we feed our dogs. And, and they just, they respond fantastically to it. And, and they're, they're healthy and they have lots of energy. And I've, I've spoken to very few people who have had any uh, regrets besides a, a little bit of the expense. And even that's not that bad once you do the math from transitioning from dry food to raw food. So we go, we go with the barf diet. How about you, Jad? I forget. Do you have a dog? No. So I actually, I, I do not. I, I have no pets, just two little boys. Um, and but I, I, I've had pets basically all my life, but we just haven't, um, here in the, the you know past few years had any pets, but I do have an interesting story of my grandfather who lived on a very large scale farm and they had a lot of herding dogs and sheep dogs. And what was really interesting about that is I always noticed as a kid, like they would, they had plenty of cows as well and they would butcher cows and uh, they would give a lot of the meat scraps and stuff to the dogs um, as like their meal along with you know other food that came directly from the farm and it was interesting looking at the energy and the vitality that these dogs always had and people always commented on them and I look back in retrospect and think oh yeah that's interesting people always commented on how great these dogs coats were uh, and then how also how long they lived so they saw that these dogs that were eating basically kind of just that, that, that ancestral diet, if you will, uh, that maybe dogs were, were more meant to have. Uh, they were, you know, performing better as actual work dogs, and then they also were living longer. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting I do, thing. I do not have dogs or any other pets for myself, but uh, I could see that if I did, I would I would likely go that route. Just seems to make sense. Yeah. So so again, look up. The barf diet, the barf diet, and, and there's a couple companies. I think one's called like uh, Farmer's Dog. There's one called Nom Nom. Like a, a few of these companies, will actually, it's kind of like Butcher Box for your dog, that type of thing. They'll actually ship this stuff out. So there are some done for your services, which are obviously going to be a little bit more expensive. But heck, maybe we, maybe we should look in one of these companies to uh, promote the podcast and give our listeners a discount or something. So if anybody knows a company that owns or the, the folks that own like Farmer's Dog or or nom nom dog food or something like that. We'll, we'll get them on board and hook you guys up with a discount if we can. So anyways, though, so yeah, just, just feed your dogs the Rocky diet, put raw eggs in a blender, toss some beef in there, maybe a little bit of raw liver. And within no time flat, your Chihuahua is going to be a mighty wolf. All right, Jack, I hope that was helpful. And, uh, what I'm going to do now is bring up Josh. So Josh, go ahead. Hey, Ben and Jay. I'm a long-time listener and uh, big fan of your Keon product. That wasn't a plug, by the way. I just had a question regarding uh, maintaining a healthy liver and kidneys. Um, I recently got some blood work done and uh, was told I had fatty liver. The doctor kept asking me if, that, if I was uh, a drinker and a smoker, which I'm not. Uh, I live a very uh, healthy lifestyle. I eat a whole foods diet. I uh, work out five or six days a week. Um, so I was just wondering if you had any suggestions about supplements or, uh, just anything I could do to, uh, improve my kidneys and my liver. Obviously we could talk for hours about supporting, uh, supporting the, the kidney health and the liver health via a variety of different mechanisms. And there's a lot of stuff that's just kind of, 
you know, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like don't drink too much alcohol and avoid excessive exercise without recovery, which can elevate liver enzymes and drink enough water and stay hydrated. And then you can even get in a hold of the doctrine of signatures thing. And you could look at companies like ancestral supplements where you can consume grass fed kidney and grass fed liver, which based on the, you know, slightly woo, but I think somewhat reasonable suggestion that like supports like that that might be another uh, useful way to support those organs. You can avoid excessive protein intake. You can avoid high intake of, of pharmaceutical compounds and even many Ayurvedic herbs that seem to be associated with, uh, with liver problems, especially when taken in higher amounts. Uh, and I would say a few things that kind of fly under the radar when it comes to liver care, elevated liver enzymes, uh, kidney care, poor uh, uh, glomerular rate in the kidneys, etc. Um, the first would be that in Chinese traditional medicine, I think they, they have a really, really good approach, particularly to renal health. Like there's, there's a lot of Chinese formulas that are really, really good for renal health. Some of the bigger ones that they'll use in Chinese traditional medicine for renal health, some of which have crossover effects for the liver. Uh, one is astragalus. And astragalus is, uh, it's, a, it's an herb, sometimes it's called an adaptogen, but it's a, it's a, it's a root-based herb uh, that you can get in like a powder or a supplement. Astragalus is absolutely fantastic for supporting renal function. And that's, that's one to look into. Uh, interestingly, rhubarb extract is another that in traditional Chinese medicine seems to work pretty well for supporting the kidney. Uh, there's another one called Radix, R-A-D-I-X. It's a major medicinal herb used in Chinese traditional medicine. That would be another one to look into. And then a lot of people are familiar with this uh, this cordyceps extract, which is like a kind of like a fungal extract used in many cases for sports performance enhancement. But that one seems to be really supportive of renal function as well. And so, I mean, doing something like that and then just consuming a, a lot of really, really good, clean, pure filtered water would be kind of an approach that a lot of people might be unaware of when it comes to renal health. Uh, when it comes to kidney health, I think that, uh, oh, you know, what? I, I should mention that that in this traditional Chinese medicine, a lot of times they'll combine a lot of these stuff and, and they call them tonifying formulas, tonifying formulas, and they, they have different names. And there's a there's a guy here who's actually been on my podcast before who I've interviewed, uh, Dr. Toby Halowitz, who's a Chinese uh, traditional medicine trained practitioner. And he in the past has just whipped up all sorts of crazy powders for me to support different organs. And so if you have a good, well-trained uh, Chinese medical practitioner and and you can have him like do powders and formulations for you in the same way that a compounding pharmacist would, a lot of them will combine a lot of these things for, for renal health, which I, th I think is a reasonable approach. Now for the liver, I, I think my go-to guy for liver health is actually a, a guy named Dr. John Duyard out of Boulder, Colorado. I really like him because pretty much any of any client who comes to me needs to do a liver cleanse. I'll have him do his short cleanse, which is a five day cleanse or his longer two week cleanse, which is called the Colorado cleanse. You can get these on his website. I'll, I'll link to him in the show notes as well. He has a really great podcast called safe liver cleansing, which is really, really great. And he, he has a really good, reasonable approach. It doesn't involve a bunch of expensive supplements, but he, he uses five primary herbs in a lot of his, his detoxes is turmeric, uh, one called Gaduchi, G-U-D-U-C-H-I, 
uh, amalaki, which is also known as gooseberry. You might be familiar with that one. Barbary, and then one with a really, really long name, but it's in Indian Ayurvedic medicine. It's pretty much the most liver supportive herb that exists. And they've shown like almost you know, restoration of liver cells in terms of liver cell recovery in heavy drinkers and a significant drop in liver enzymes from this one. It's called Buma, Bumia Malaki, B H U M. Y-A-M-A-L-A-K-I. It's an Ayurvedic approach. So John uses a real Ayurvedic approach, and he's got this short cleanse and the longer Colorado cleanse. I'm a huge fan of that. And a lot of times, I'll have people go through one of his cleanses and top it off afterwards with just regular consumption of, I think, one of the better formulated liver support supplements out there called Liver Sauce. Liver Sauce, great name, uh, made by Dr. Uh, Chris Shade at Quicksilver Scientific. I think we have a discount code for it somewhere. If I find it, I'll, I'll tuck it into the show notes. Anyways, though, so Dr. John Duyard, D-O-U-I-L-L-A-R-D, I'll stand behind any of his stuff, any of his cleanses, any of his detoxes. Uh, he just does a really good job. He's a really great guy, We're really well-trained, very reasonable approach. So, uh, and, and honestly, a lot of his cleanses, just from a limp standpoint and a, and a liver and gallbladder standpoint, are also going to be supportive for uh, for kidney function also. And then finally, you know, I, I came across this because I was helping out a client recently who's actually having some issues with uh, some pretty significant uh, psoriasis and fibrosis issues with the liver. And we talked a little bit about peptides. There is one uh, peptide out there, you know, with these peptides being kind of, kind of, you know, the future of medicine in terms of a real, real targeted way to go after certain organ groups. And there's this one called HMGB1 that's got some research behind it for significant attenuation of liver inflammation and suppression of fibrosis. And, uh, you know, there are companies like Can Labs, CAN Labs, that do peptides. Uh, Dr. Matt Cook at BioReset Medical. Uh, Dr. Craig Conover at Conover Wellness does a really great job with peptides. He even prepackages them for you and sends them in their syringes. So you don't have to, like, remix them and formulate them and do all the reconstitution and everything. They just arrive already in the syringes because a lot of these these peptides are injectable. But it's interesting. There, there is one peptide. And again, I haven't taken this peptide. I, I haven't really gone deep, deep into the long-term research on it. If long-term research even exists, I just have to clarify that. But anyways, HMGB1 is one to actually look into for, especially for more significant liver issues. So that's another one I'd, I'd check out. And then, I don't know, Jay, you got anything to add? You did a pretty good job there. I would say the oh, one gee, thing, I know, I know, I'm so good at my platitudes. So the one thing that I would mention, uh, which is always something that should be in the back of your mind for any you know type of health and wellness, but especially for kidney health, and this would also apply to a liver health, is just making sure that you're maintaining good, appropriate blood pressure, because that is going to have mm. probably one of the most significant impacts on overall renal functioning. Um, so obviously, there are plenty of things that we can do to best manage blood pressure, but as a psychologist, I do feel compelled to say that stress is a key component that people need to look out for, and they don't really put two and two together when they start to see difficulty with renal problems, but it could be very much related to blood pressure, to uh, a lack of dysfunction and overall baroreflex, um, which is your homeostatic mechanism for managing blood pressure. And so, uh, you know, there's different things that you can do. Obviously, mm -hmm. I talk a lot about biofeedback. It's a really great approach for baroreflex sensitivity. Uh, but yeah, just one, just in case that was not addressed, I would say look into that one as well. Okay. Got it. Perfect. Cool. Um, you know, I, I have a, a, a consult with one of my clients coming up here 
in a little bit, but I think I got time for one more question. I think I got time for one more question. So let's let's do this. What the heck? I just got to decide who. You know, I'm going to go with Jill Eckstein. I bet it's Gil. Gil. Would I say Jill? Yeah, probably Gil. Uh, my apologies. All right, Gil, what you got? Yeah, Gil. Thank you so much. Hey, guys. Uh, I appreciate you both. And my question today is about plants intake, especially leafy greens. Uh, ben, I've been following you for a long time, and I'm a huge fan. And recently, I came across the work by Paul Saladino. I've been listening to a lot of his content lately and also the podcast that you guys did together a few years ago and also the Q&A about his book. And I love his content and I know you have a lot of respect for him. Um, what really surprised me about his idea about plant intake and hormesis is about, is, is, is I heard you've been talking about this a lot, but I heard that he, his point is that the cons outweigh the pros when it comes to plant, plants intake, especially leafy greens. And also that the environmental hormesis that you've been talking about a lot is much better since it results in the same side effect, in the same benefit, the side effect. So I want to ask you, what's your current opinion about this, especially about plant intake and leafy greens? Do you think the pros outweigh the cons? Uh, do you think that if someone feels okay consuming plants, it's probably not doing so much harm? Just wanted to, to hear your opinion about this. Thank you so much. All right. Pretty cool accent Gil has, by the mm-hmm. way. I like that. All right. I think many people are familiar with my opinion on this or perhaps even more familiar with it after explaining what I feed our dogs. Uh, I, um, I, I have no doubt that human beings can survive just fine on a well-comprised nose-to-tail carnivore diet, maybe with a little bit of extra minerals thrown in and some, like, you know, ground-up eggshells. You know, again, the same type of thing I put in a dog's diet. Uh, at the same time... Um, you know, there are a lot of nutrients and flavanols and polyphenols, et cetera, that have been heavily researched in plants for decades. You know, perhaps uh, I think one of the best introductions to this idea would be William Lee's book, L.I., Eat to Beat Disease, where you kind of realize how many anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory and generally pro-health benefits that you get from plants exist when you're eating a more omnivorous diet. I also think that there are a lot of social restrictions that arise when you're eating a purely nose-to-tail carnivore diet that make it a little less fun, you know, when you're over at somebody's house for dinner and you're the guy eating, you know, the extra piece of steak or, you know, you sit down with dinner with your family and you're not eating anything on the table and people kind of feel maybe a little bit awkward. Is he judging me for shoving these green beans into my mouth? And, you know, even some, you know, things like wine and coffee and some of these beverages that not only seem to be associated with enhanced health, but but also joy, you know, you, you miss out on those. Um Now, the fact is that, yeah, if you have a compromised gut and you have like thyroid issues, so you can't eat a lot of goitrogenic type of foods like cruciferous vegetables, or if you have, uh, you know, gut distress when you get exposed to even the tiniest amounts of gluten, or you're unwilling to do the soaking and sprouting and fermentation necessary to deactivate a lot of the natural plant defense mechanisms that we find in plants. Well, in that case, you know, if you, you, you might have to go through a process where you spend several weeks and up to several months avoiding vegetables and grains and in some cases even fruits. You know, if you have some kind of a fructose intolerance or small intestine bacterial overgrowth or a fermentation issue in the gut or something like that. But ultimately, my take on the you know, pure, strict carnivore diet is that it's a healing diet. 
because you're eliminating a lot of things that can throw your gut for a loop. You're simplifying everything and you're just basically giving your body the nutrients it needs with no bells and whistles or frills or anything that could potentially cause some digestive distress or immune system reaction or anything like that. But as far as a long-term diet that's, you know, allows you to be healthy and happy and that's sustainable, you know, forever. I just think that a nose to tail carnivore diet, even though you could technically get by on it is a little bit boring. And frankly, like it's not necessary to avoid all these elements of you know God's great kingdom that when prepared properly, aren't that hard on the body. It's just when you're an idiot and you're just like, I don't know, buying quinoa from Costco and dumping it into a pan and, you know, heating it up and eating it and then complaining, you get gut distress. Well, yeah, it's got, it's got like soaps on it and, you know, saponins and soap-like irritants that do a number to the gut. You're supposed to soak it and rinse it, preferably even sprout it, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think that a lot of people don't take into account the necessity of slow food preparation. And, you know, I've said this before, I'll say it again, then I'll shut up. In the same way, you don't jump out of a tree branch with a knife in your teeth like a pirate and, you know, jump onto the back of an elk with giant swords coming out of its head and wrestle it to the ground and stab it and then sink your teeth into its heart. You just don't do that. No, I mean, you, you, you shoot it safely and then you skin it and you often dry age the meat and then prepare it and cook it and, and salt it and, you know, do all these things to make it edible. Well, the same thing with plants. Just don't go like pull a stalk of weed out of the ground in some farmer's field by your house and start chewing on it and expect your gut not to have a little bit of difficulty dealing with that. No, you got to take the wheat and you got to, you got to grind it and you got to mill it. And then you got to, you know, uh, you soak it and then you got to ferment it and then you got to bake it. And, you know, eventually you could make a nice, lovely loaf of, you know, whatever fermented sourdough bread right out of it. But yeah, I mean, if you're an idiot in the way that you consume food and you're not patient, you don't form an intimate relationship with the preparation methods. And then, yeah, I think that arguably vegetables and grains and the like might even be uh, harder on the body than, than poorly prepared meat. So, so that's my take. Uh, Jay, you want to you know, back me up in your in the lovely way that you do or you just yeah, want to go all tofurkey on me? I am going to be the advocate for tofurkey. Yes. No, I am. I will not do that. The, the, it comes down to, for me at least, and I think that everybody, if you want to try it, like just try it. Like just see how your body, like, you know, give it time. Um, you, you don't want to just do it in a day and say, yeah, no, screw this. I'm not going to do it. But give it give it a go. And when I say give it a go, I'm talking more about a carnivore diet because most people listen to this are probably more omnivorous than anything. Um, but what I would say there is that, again, if for a sustainability perspective, it being socially restrictive, but also behaviorally sustainable, like it's a very difficult one. I've had plenty of clients in the past who have chosen to go that route uh, as far as like an elimination diet goes, and it's been quite effective. It's been really good for them. And they slowly reintroduce things back into their diet, find out what they're still sensitive to, and then, you know, kind of work on it from, from that perspective. But I've had other individuals who have tried to go, you know, full on nose to tail carnivore. Great that they're giving it a go. But then they have almost like this rebound effect to where it's like, oh, man, like I, I'm quitting this. I hate you know mm. doing this. It feels so restrictive. And then they add in like just stuff that they obviously should not be doing, you know, just junk food, overly processed food. And it's just like this ugly rebound. So they kind of have gone from eating a relatively healthy diet, uh, you know, omnivorous, healthy diet, whole foods diet to a carnivore diet to then like rebounding to something that was worse than both of them combined. So I just like, and again, I'm not saying everybody does that, but I think from a behavioral sustainability standpoint, like eating a carnivore diet, like it, it, on paper, at least it seems way less behaviorally sustainable than it does, you know, an omn 
omnivorous diet, especially if you're eating a diet with vegetables that have been prepared, as you mentioned, in a very intelligent manner instead of just kind of flippantly, you know, eating, eating, you know, vegetables off to the side of the road, like you mentioned. So, yeah, I, I, I think that it comes down to knowing thyself in this matter. But also, if you're going to try it, try it, try it the right way. Learn about it. Educate yourself. And don't just kind of jump into it, you know, either way without mm-hmm. the research and the time and prep. Yeah, I think we should coin a new term instead of behaviorally sustainable. We'll make up a new word, behaviable. It's just not, it's just like not it. super behaviable. Yeah. That's it, man. <laughs> Webster's Dictionary. Here <laughs> there we, we go. go. <laughs> it's coming in. And by the way, somebody did send in a tweet during our show. I mean, this is going to be an aside, and then we'll probably need to end soon because I do have to go hop on this call. Uh, Twitter handle Arena Manifesto, the man in the arena says, you can give your dog's bones by making bone pate. I've never even thought Ooh. of that. I don't know if I have quite the time to to research bone pate, but if if anyone heard this, go to the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash 449 when this podcast comes out and share your, your recipe for how to make bone pate, which actually sounds interesting. Maybe that'll be in my next cookbook. And uh, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll give it a try. We'll bone pate. Um, and... Uh, you know what? I think I don't even know if we have time to, to to read a review, but I'll tell you what. If you guys go do the generosity thing, remember everybody, a thousand of you, all one thousand of you, please go and uh, and and read that article on generosity and do one of those things, preferably number forty five, if you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> Especially so, if you want free gear. That's right. So bengreenfieldlife.com slash four four nine is where all the show notes reside. I love you all. I love you too, Jay. By the way. I You're very you behavioral. That was so sweet. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. I try to be behavioral. All right, folks. Well, until next time, I'm Ben, along with the great JT Wiles, signing out from bengreenfieldlife.com. Have an amazing week. More than ever these days, people like you and me need a fresh, entertaining, well-informed, and often outside-the-box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave. So I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today. And if you liked it, or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be, and just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot.